This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, scientists, including an Australian Nobel Prize laureate, aim to settle the debate on the origins of COVID-19. Laboratory escape or a bat? Many of us don't get the sleep quality we need, but could exercise help counter the toll it takes on our health? COVID vaccines and people with cancer, should they be vaccinated? And how well do COVID vaccines work, especially in people with blood malignancies like leukaemia? And the question that millions of people in New South Wales want to have answered. How long will the lockdown last and what will it take to get the spread under control and back to zero? There are now hundreds of cases and a high proportion of them are in intensive care with one death so far. The growth has become exponential. When I say high proportion, high proportion compared to Victoria last year. The Burnett Institute in Melbourne has provided the health report and 7.30 exclusive access to modelling, which tries to give a sense of what might and could happen. They used data from last year's Victorian second wave and worked out what the effects would be of various restrictions and level of lockdown, but with a Delta variant outbreak, and high-performance contact tracing, such as New South Wales has. Professor Margaret Hellard led the modelling. She's Deputy Director of the Burnett Institute. Welcome back to The Health Report, Margaret. Hi, Norman. Hi, Tegan. How are you both? We're well. What does the modelling show? What the modelling that we've done is... it's a, So I think this... I want to be clear, it's a simulation. So it's not uh, like we know what is exactly going to happen in New South Wales. But what it suggests is if we simulate the impact of restrictions um, for a Delta outbreak in Victoria, where we've sort of got similar numbers to New South Wales, what it suggests is that uh, if the level of restrictions that are currently uh, occurring in New South Wales, which is close to really for Victoria last year, what we called stage three plus masks, that that would hopefully get the uh, outbreak under control in the sense of stopping the numbers going up, so that's the current sort of restrictions, but it's unlikely to bring it down quickly and that what our findings would suggest, and again, it's a simulation and thinking about a Victorian model, not a New South Wales model and many caveats applied, um, that to get it down faster, the restrictions will need to be greater. So how long would it take to get it down and to what level if the restrictions stayed at the same level with the caveats you've just mentioned? Uh, Weeks and weeks and weeks. In fact, we didn't model out that far, Norman. Right. I mean, and tonight's 7.30, Brendan Crabb says to Christmas. Uh, it, It could... Well, I, I wouldn't want to say that because, as I said, it's a simulation model and so I'm really mindful of it and, and the like, but it, it is um, taking a long time to get down. So I, I think we can't say when it is, but yes, but it's, it's slow. a long time. Right. Really slow. It's, it's, it's essentially a, a curve that's flipped and slowly, slowly coming down, but it's as close to sort of flat but coming down as you can get without, without it going up. All right. Certainly well beyond the end of August well beyond to the end of August if, with the current uh, level of restrictions. Now, I really want to be careful again. What we modelled was Victoria's stage three plus masks from last year in our outbreak. And when we sort of try and our best compare that, because we're not in New South Wales and we're not privy to all of the the details of the restrictions, but that's that's pretty close to what New South Wales' current updated restrictions uh, give or take a few differences. So what happens if you up the ante? 
If you up the ante, the news is really good. And I think that's probably the point I would like to make more than um, this will go on forever, is if you up the ante and you increase the restrictions and there is move, room to move for New South Wales to do so, then you do begin to get the, the, the curve, the, the numbers to begin to fall um, much, much faster, um, such that you're returning to a low level of, of the number of infections. By when? Again, it's a simulation, but it's weeks, not, it's not next week, it's, it's weeks. So you'd be going, you know, we're in mid-July now and you'd be certainly thinking that you'd be needing to go well into August. And what are the restrictions that New South Wales would have to add on? The kind of things that they really, again, as I said, I'm really not wanting to sort of be telling people what to be doing um, without being privy to all of the details, but things like really restricting um, the shopping um, so that it's it's that people aren't out shopping with things that were happening. A lot of non-essential retail shut in Victoria. Now, that is really impactful on people who have businesses and like, and I'm not saying that with any joy or easy, you know, sort of things and knowing that it's not easy, but stuff like that. Masks we had indoor and outdoor. Now, a reasonable question is, did outdoor masks have impact? And perhaps they do, perhaps they don't. I actually can't answer that. But what I do know is that we had both and maybe it's a signal to people that if I'm outdoors and then I'm lining up for a coffee, I've got my mask on or those kind of things. And, of course, stage four had five kilometres radius, not 10 kilometres radius. Yeah. And things like that. Again, if you said to me, and, and also we began to have curfew. So if you said to me, Margaret, prove to me that the five kilometre radius was impactful. Prove to me that the curfew was impactful. I have to be really honest and say, Norman, individually, it's super difficult for us to measure those things in our model. But what we can say is the combined effect, be it directly stopping virus spread or the kind of community consciousness of the seriousness of what you're dealing with or a combination of those two things meant it was impactful. So do you wait till Friday to see what the results of last Saturday are or do you go now? I'm not the Chief Health Officer of New South Wales and I don't have eyes on their data and what they think is really happening. I don't have eyes on how well they but think their contact tracing is. what they say is happening is, is that it's going to go up each day. They're expecting it to go up. I think the sooner that you um, go to the restrictions that would bring the curve down, the better. So, yeah, I would go as early as possible. But then, Norman, as you and I know, you know from previous discussions, I'm a, um, having gone through Victoria and done a lot of the modelling for Victoria... Our evidence clearly suggests you go hard, go early. And the price of delay, each day of delay? Uh, you then have a longer tail to bring it down so that what we when we looked at this for Victoria, when you delay going, then the tail goes out so that you don't gain anything by the delaying. You actually lose something because you're in, in at the far end, at the back end, you're in, in lockdown for longer. And the effect of vaccination? The effect of vaccination at the moment is not there. Um, but what we know, and I think you and I and, and Tegan spoke previously about the impact of vaccination, and vaccination alone won't get us out of this, but if we can get up to sort of 60 to 80% vaccination, whilst we're still at risk of outbreaks, the level of restrictions we need to bring in to impose goes down. Margaret, thanks for joining us. That's been fascinating. My pleasure, Norman. And thank you. And thank you, Tegan. And a bit depressing. I'd no, like not say. depressing. I think there's room to... I, can I just say, I think there's room to move. And I think the New South Wales contact tracing has made a really big impact and those things. There's positive things here, but Delta is hard. Thanks. Professor Margaret Hellard is Deputy Director of the Burnett Institute. 
There's been an acrimonious global debate about where SARS-CoV-2, the COVID virus, came from. Was it an escapee from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where they'd been genetically manipulating bat coronaviruses, or did it come from a bat? The row hasn't been helped by the lack of transparency of the Chinese government and the failure of a WHO mission to come up with answers. A team of international scientists has tried to settle the issue by bringing together the current evidence because either conclusion has significant implications. They argue that as we continue to navigate this pandemic, failure to understand the origins of the coronavirus will put us at risk of another pandemic. Nobel laureate Professor Peter Doherty is one of the paper's authors. Welcome back to The Health Report, Peter. Oh, thanks, Norman. What evidence was there to sift? Uh, the virologists went through it in detail. I'm not one of the virologists. I'm, though I've worked with viruses for years, my field's immunology. But people like Eddie Holmes and Sydney and a whole lot of people who uh, specialise in looking at viral sequences looked very hard at the sequences and they couldn't see anything that suggested that it was either... Uh, a known strain or that it was a, a lab, a lab, a, that it was an engineered strain in any sense whatsoever. Now, whether it escaped from a lab or not, of course, you, you can't prove that really. If it's a, a virus that was isolated in the field and was brought to the lab and then got out of the lab, um, there's no way you'd know that against a virus that was uh, coming directly out of uh, out of bats and to people or some other species. So the actual fact of this, though, is uh, it's, it's given that the virus doesn't look as though it's been genetically manipulated, and I don't think anyone serious thinks that's the case, I, I'm not sure it actually helps us much, quite frankly, to know uh, whether it came directly into, into people through a, an intermediate species or directly from bats. If it did escape from a lab, it wouldn't have made much difference. It doesn't help us deal with the next one. What what we have to do is be watching those wildlife populations and expecting these things will come out of nature. Because in the paper you talk about this is the ninth documented coronavirus that infects humans and the seventh identified in the last 20 years. So there's form here. Yeah, absolutely. There's two. We knew about two coronaviruses in human populations before the year 2002. They're common cold coronaviruses. They also cause croup. But what I, I, I must say, since COVID-19, I'm really wondering whether they don't cause other things as well. But they've been around since the 1960s. The original coronavirus, which was named by a, uh, a Scottish uh, electron microscopist called June Almeida, working in, in London, was one of those. And, uh, and then after 2002, suddenly, between 2000, 2000 and 2020, we've got five more human coronaviruses known. Uh, one was the original SARS virus, which infected people and then burned out. The two more common cold ones, possible one of them was circulating before we, we missed it. But then there's the Mears one in the Middle East that goes from camels into people, kills 30% of people, but not as infectious. And then we've got COVID-2. So something has dramatically changed since the year 2000. And basically, I think that is, uh, is massive international air travel and passenger air travel, particularly out of China with an emerging middle class. And China has live animal markets and live bird markets. We know from influenza and we know from, from uh, the original SARS, these places are extremely dangerous. 
So, so those are, that's the kind of evidence, that's the evidence for the animal spread. However, the lab was doing what's called gain of function studies, where they were taking back coronaviruses and changing their genetic structure in order to see what would turn them into a pandemic virus. And there has been a, a, a leak, I think the 1977 H1N1 influenza pandemic arose, well, it rose from a large vaccine challenge trial. So it's, it's, 1977, Norman, is like uh, like when the dinosaurs went extinct. It's a million years ago. There have been a you were just a lad then. Uh, uh, constraints and, and, uh, and control and regulation put into these high security laboratories since then. That 1977 escape, the suspicion is it occurred in the old USSR, and it was actually deliberate. They actually challenged people with the bloody virus. That was, if that's true, it was crazy. But there has never been a pandemic caused by a lab escape. And is, is that because, as people have said on the health report before, they're not good enough when they come out of the lab? They're just not good enough at actually manufacturing that? Look, a gain of function. You talked about gain of function. You know, the measles, mumps, rubella, yellow fever vaccines are all gain of function vaccines. We took those viruses, they passaged them through mice, so they gained a function to kill mice or to, or, or to grow in cell culture, and then they're attenuated for us, and they're, they're what we call live attenuated vaccines. I mean, this, the problem is this. If you blame it on a lab escape and you say there are evil people in the lab, and as we know, there are people who simply can't conceive that anything happens that's bad without evil people being involved. If you say the lab people are evil or incompetent, then you compromise our capacity as scientists to actually do the work that protects people. As it is, most of this work is done under very high security conditions. People are often working in spacesuits. This is incredibly hard hard yards to follow so, and you know, to to insist on this that's it's not an impossibility but to insist on this it simply puts our gaze in the wrong direction and just finally peter doherty if, assuming that it does come from animals what do we do to prevent the next pandemic we're, we need some, some definite policy changes. We need to strengthen the WHO. We need to insist that as soon as anything like this happens anywhere, that the country concerned, wherever it happens, is absolutely open. If it's a country that's poor and doesn't have high sophisticated science, as not on, uh, China did, I mean, they've got fantastic science in this area. But if it's a poor country, we need a team of people who can go there immediately and help. And we also need to stop the planes flying out of that region, especially the passenger planes, right now, right then. As soon as it happens, you stop the planes. That's where the Chinese went wrong. It's not that it got out of the lab. It's that they didn't stop the planes. Nobel laureate Peter, Peter Presbyterian, thanks for joining us on the Health Report. You're welcome, Norman. One of the commonest questions we get on Coronacast, our sister podcast, is from people with cancer who ask whether they should be vaccinated against COVID and how effective are the current vaccines. Well, people with cancer generally respond well to COVID-19 vaccines and are able to produce protective antibodies. That may not be as true for people who have blood malignancies like leukaemia, where the immune system itself is affected. New research published in the Lancet, in Lancet Hematology has found that people with blood cancers, and particularly those on certain treatments, had lower antibody responses to the Pfizer vaccine. So what does this mean for those affected and how can they stay safe in the pandemic? Associate Professor Kate Burberry is a haematologist and Deputy Chief Medical Officer at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. Welcome to the Health Report, Kate. 
Thank you for having me, Norman. So the findings of this were not just about leukaemia, it was about the treatment that they were on. Correct. Um, this study, interestingly, is concordant with what we already know, that both patients with blood cancers, either related to their underlying blood disorder, as you alluded to, Norman, such as leukaemia, or the treatment they're receiving, can have a reduced or varied anti antibody response to vaccines, included COVID-19 vaccine. It's not unique to that one. It's across the board with vaccines. And I think importantly, this is something that as doctors looking after these patients, we are very familiar with. So for patients with blood cancers or indeed across the board with cancers, reaching out to your haematologist or oncologist or indeed your GP to ask about the appropriateness of any vaccine, included, including COVID-19, is really important. How how different is the results, though, compared to people who've got regular cancers? I don't want to say regular cancers. I mean, solid what they call solid tumours, like colon cancer, lung cancer, yeah. breast cancer. Understood. And, and I think largely it's due to their ability to mount an antibody response. So we know there are certain blood disorders, such as leukaemia, sometimes in B-cell disorders, such as chronic lymphocytic leukaemia or myeloma. They're unable to mount antibody responses generally, um, as well as due to vaccines. So it is more problematic in patients with blood cancers. But I liken it a little bit to how we use the annual flu vaccine. We know that being vaccinated won't necessarily prevent an infection, but we hope, the intent is to prevent, but we suppose will reduce the likelihood of a severe infection and therefore further transmission as well. So in particular with patients that have a reduced immune system, some protection is better than none. And more importantly, a widespread vaccination program throughout the community will hopefully achieve a reduced likelihood of transmission, particularly to those patients who are at risk. So they're protected by other people's immunisation. Now, the French Correct. would give three doses of Pfizer to people like mm. this. Why aren't we? It's a good question, and I think we don't know the answer to that, Norman. I think that's across the board with all the vaccines. And even if you look at this current study, they took index points before they were vaccinated uh, at the point of the first and then 10 days post the second vaccine, and we don't know the durability of those vaccines. So giving further, further boosters doesn't necessarily mount a greater response. Um, it may um, over time, but... More importantly, you can see the most discriminating factor was actually time since their last treatment. So actually revaccinating people during their lowest immune period might not necessarily be advantageous. What about organ transplant recipients? I mean, many people with blood cancers have had a bone marrow transplant and mm. there's some disturbing evidence from other organ transplants that organ transplant recipients get, get almost no antibody response to vaccines. So I think we need to separate solid versus stem cell transplants. And you can see even in this study, those that got donor stem cell transplants, so allogeneic, where they're basically being given a healthy donor stem cell that reconstitutes uh, their immune system, they actually had very good antibody responses. And indeed, those that had their own stem cells back also had very good antibody responses. So that's very different to someone who's had a solid organ transplant that then requires immunosuppression to re uh, prevent rejection of that organ transplant. I would put organ solid organ transplants in a similar position to those with suppressed immune systems due to their underlying disease and or therapy. Now, I mentioned coronacast and the questions we get. I keep on getting questions from people saying their oncologist has advised, and I'm gobsmacked to hear it, their oncologist mm. has advised them not to have the vaccine at all. Why on earth would an oncologist recommend that to somebody with cancer when it seems to me that the imperative is actually to get vaccinated even if the results are a bit poorer than the general population? 
So what I can say is that it's not the same for all, all patient populations. There are some people with underlying malignancies that aren't at an increased risk of a severe infection, but equally they're the people that are most likely to respond well to the vaccine as well. So certainly for us, I think the most important thing but, but, is some on, protection is... Yeah, but why would an oncologist recommend to somebody with cancer not to have the vaccine at all? I can't speak for individual oncologists, but I know generally across the board, most of us would be advocating some protection is better than none. Um, and the only concern we would have is that they might not mount an adequate um, antibody response and therefore advocating that they continue to pursue the usual protective mechanisms, such as keeping themselves safe uh, and uh, avoiding um, people that might have infective symptoms. But I, I would be surprised if oncologists and haematologists would be advising against it for the fear of safety issues and otherwise, except in the situation where we know there may be a risk of developing clots with the vaccine. And finally, just advice for people with cancer, particularly haematological malignancies? said, I think reach out to your haematologist. This is something we're very familiar with and we have very good strategies to support our patients in terms of the decision making. Um, and equally with GPs, and many of us as haematologists and oncologists are working with the GPs in this space. Um, I think telehealth has been transformative in this space. So we're doing telehealth consultations with the GPs and the patients to advise them around COVID vaccination. Kate, thanks for joining us on the Health Report. Thank you for having me. Associate Professor Kate Berber is a haematologist and Deputy Chief Medical Officer at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne. Here are two things you already know are good for you, exercise and sleep. But just how much of an effect do they have on your risk of dying? And is one more powerful a protectant than the other? A group of researchers has been looking into exactly this, focusing on how sleep and physical activity interact with your risk of dying from cancer and cardiovascular disease. The top line result is that they're both protective. And if you can only get one, exercise might be better. But let's drill down into the results with a bit more nuance with one of the authors, Emmanuel Stamatakis from the Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney. Welcome, Emmanuel. Thanks for having me again. So we already know that sleep and exercise are good for us. So what's new in this study? Uh, there is a number, of, we found a number of novel results. Uh, the most important one is that uh, if you put uh, physical inactivity, not doing enough physical activity and having a poor sleep pattern into the same basket, what you get is a risk that is uh, larger than the sum of the individual risks. Uh, so in other words, we found what we call a synergy between those two uh, established, as you pointed out, uh, behavioral risk factors. That's right. And it went in both directions. So if you got both, you were better. And if you didn't get either, you were worse. Uh, much worse. So, yeah, specifically, we found um, uh, in, in, in it's, it's a, the, the jargon is multiplicative interaction, which is very simple. It simply means that uh, if you have, let's say, 20% increase in risk from physical activity and 30% uh, increase from poor sleep, if you put them uh, for people who have both of them, you don't get the sum, you get uh, more than the sum, you get the product, you get 60% higher risk. So I think a lot of us would think of sleep and physical activity as things we can either choose to do or choose not to do. But there's actually a lot in here that we can't choose, especially around the sleep space. You looked at uh, 
the healthy sleep was sort of a combination of things like whether or not you were an early bird or a night owl, how long you slept for, whether you had insomnia, whether you snored, whether you were sleepy in the daytime. Really the only thing there that you can kind of control for yourself is how long you sleep for. So how do you act on this if, if you're just an individual? This is the subject of an ongoing discussion in various uh, scientific disciplines and subdisciplines, including epidemiology, where I work. Uh, because, uh, strictly speaking, uh, it's, it's debatable whether sleep is a behavior. And uh, therefore, the expression sleep hygiene is not always correct because exactly because the sleep is to a large extent beyond our control. So therefore, behavior implies that you have some reasonable control over it. The only aspect of sleep is um, is, is, is uh, sleep duration. And uh, because yeah, nobody chooses to have insomnia, for example, nobody chooses whether they snore or not. Nobody chooses whether they have daytime uh, uh, sleepiness. Uh, the good news, and uh, that's the second major uh, finding that came out from our study, is uh, that uh, physical activity at levels equivalent to meeting the Australian Department of Health or WHO 2020 recommendations seems to counteract most uh, if not all of risks of poor sleep, long-term risks of, of poor sleep. So our, our study essentially, the message is a very positive one. It's a very positive and a very optimistic message because although sleep, it is to a large extent beyond our control, there is something we can do to counter the health risks of sleep. So that's one uh, level, one level of optimism. They say that our study provides. The second level of optimism is that previous research of ours uh, has shown that physical activity increases the chances of people getting a good night's sleep and uh, a good night's sleep increases the chance of people becoming physically active in the future. So there seems to be a fair amount of behavioral interaction between the two behavior, between the two, the two variables, let's call them, because I've just said that perhaps sleep should not be called a health behavior. Between the two variables, there is a certain amount of behavioral interaction, uh, which makes um, physical activity a win-win all-round intervention, a win-win all-round option for people who experience uh, sleep problems. Uh, sleep problems are not a niche problem. It's uh, about 40% of Australian Australian adults at any given time suffer from at least one uh, form of sleep disturbance. 60% of uh, us would experience sleep disturbances at some point, and 15% of Australians could be classified clinically classified as suffering from insomnia. Right, so it really affects a lot of people. And you said before the WHO physical activity guidelines, and of course that's looking for at least 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise a week or 75 minutes a week of vigorous intensity exercise. So you were looking at specifically cancer and cardiovascular disease risk of death. Why did you focus on those? Uh, we chose the outcomes based on previous uh, literature, uh, previous sleep epidemiology literature, and uh, we chose our outcomes were uh, all-cause mortality, uh, cardiovascular mortality, cancer mortality, and we also looked at some subtypes of cardiovascular disease and cancer mortality. Uh, specifically, we looked at lung cancer mortality and uh, stroke uh, and coronary heart disease. Yeah, our decision was uh, driven by previous sleep literature, which showed that these are the kind of cardiovascular and cancer outcomes that uh, seem to be affected the most by poor sleep patterns.
And so the main takeaway for people is get exercise if you can't get sleep. Uh, the, the, for, for the lay public, the, the main takeaway is that the physical activity exercise is a win-win all around because not only for those who experience sleep problems, it will improve their sleep, uh, it help them solve the problems. Uh, even if they don't solve the sleep problems through exercise, uh, the physical activity will uh, pay, may decrease the long-term health risks of sleep. And of course, we should not forget that physical activity is uh, linked with all sorts of benefits, mental health, physical health, cognition, uh, cardiovascular, metabolic diabetes. We could be talking here for another <laughs> 20 minutes about the list of benefits. So yeah, physical activity, the main take home for people is that physical activity is a win-win all around. And this is not only for lay people. This is a message to be heard by uh, healthcare professionals, people, healthcare professionals who deal with uh, uh, patients, the general public, like general practitioners or uh, clinicians who deal with people who suffer from sleep problems. Well, we let's, need hope to put, let's hope they're yeah. listening to this right now. Thank you so much, Emmanuel. Yeah, thanks very much. Emmanuel Stematakis is a professor of physical activity, lifestyle and population health at the University of Sydney. Now it's time for your questions. If you want to um, send in a question, just remind me what the email address is, Teague. I always forget what it is. Thanks for asking, Norman. It's, it's health First report. question of the day. What's the, what's the email address? <laughs> I can answer this one for you. It's healthreport at abc.net.au. Now, the first question is for you, because it was your story last week on your research from mice, um, found that a high-carbohydrate, low-protein fat diet was best for a long and happy life, well, at least long and happy life in mice. But I'm sure you also had reports that older people need more protein, and I'm also trying, always trying to get my parents to eat more protein. Do I need to? Tegan? Yes. Uh, so it's really interesting. Dr. St- uh, Professor Steve Simpson, who we spoke to for the story, had so much to say and I had to cut it down for the show. So there was some information that he gave that didn't make the cut. And one of those things was that even in the mice, they did need more protein as they got older. So even the ones on that very low protein diet, if they survived to uh, old age, they needed more protein when they got very old, which of course d- does actually gel with what we know about humans. Um, And so a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, Susanna Lyons, did a story on this a couple of years ago about basically how much protein we need. Um, When you're an adult, you need about 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. But when you reach about age 70, that does go up. So it goes up to about one gram per kilo as as you reach 70. However, the Australian average Australian actually consumes about 1.2 grams of protein per kilo. So we're actually, most of us are actually getting more than we need. So uh, talk to your mum and dad about that, Claire, but uh, it might be that they're actually meeting those those thresholds anyway. But they sometimes do you know, go off their food and need a bit more and their quality of their immune system is directly proportional. So keeping with diets, Norman, Edwina's got a question for you. She's been reading your book on the value of slow, low temperature cooking to bring the benefits of reduced inflammation as we age. Uh, And Edwina's wondering whether she can still use her pressure cooker, which she always says does slow cooking, but fast. Well, that's exactly right about your pressure cooker. So the slow cooking has high moisture and essentially doesn't burn the food. So it's the burning of the food that you get in, say, a barbecue or a dry oven that causes the problem. It's the brown caramelization that has these substances. It is controversial, but there is... That's the stuff that makes it taste so good, Norman. It is, and my mouth is watering as I say (laughs) it. 
They're called advanced glycation end products. It's a little bit controversial. Some people are believing them, some people don't. But there's a growing body of thought that they actually do matter and they're pro-oxidants. So that's, that's what worries. So the occasional barbecue is fine. But if you're cooking in a pressure cooker, it's high, degree, it's high moisture. And in fact, what some people suggest is either if you don't have a steam oven, that you put a tray of, when you're doing a roast, you'd put a tray of water in, uh, in the oven, either separate or you, you actually put, say, a stock around the, around the roast. So the roast is roasted in a moist environment. That sounds delicious too. I think we can. I think we yeah, can still have ready. delicious food and eat my, it too. I'm ready for my supper. And we have had a lot of stories this week on the health report about COVID, and there's questions about it too, Norman. Uh, Jonathan wants to know whether there's any validity to an article about increased myocarditis risk in young males, which is of course that inflammation around the heart uh, following COVID vaccination with mRNA vaccines like Pfizer or Moderna. Yep, and I can refer you to my seven thirty story last week on this. Um, where we interviewed Nicholas Cox from uh, Western Health, who's been advising Atagi on this. Look, this does occur in about 1 in 50,000 immunisations, and it's with second immunisation to Pfizer or Moderna. And it's almost always mild. When I say it's it's mild, it's not mild to begin with. You end up, you've got chest pain, maybe fever, a bit of breathlessness, and it's enough to get you into hospital, as you should. Anybody with chest pain needs to be in hospital and getting sorted out. But with anti-inflammatories, by and large, get better. It's mostly males, but it does happen in women. I wonder what the mechanism is there. It sounds like such a specific group and such a specific set of symptoms. They they, They simply don't understand that. Well, know. another question about the Pfizer or mRNA vaccines from Philip about side effects being one of the side effects listed being joint pain. Uh, some people suffer from joint pain regularly, and Philip wants to know whether existing joint pain can be made temporarily worse by the Pfizer jab. Uh, it's hard to know if some if someone's suffering from unusually bad, normal, and occasional joint pain, or whether it's a side effect of the vaccine. Look, I think there is a side effect of the vaccine which causing joint pain, and it could be actually similar to the myocarditis, where the the vaccine causes some inflammation. In other words, you get an overactive immune system. I mean, having said a moment ago, you don't know why the myocarditis happens. It's almost certainly inflammation from an overactive immune system. And that's probably the origins of the joint pain. And I, I don't know if there's good enough evidence to suggest that it, it, you know, it makes existing joint pain worse. It could or makes you more susceptible to the, joints, the joint pain side effect. But like the myocarditis, it's self-limiting, meaning that it goes away. And another question for female listeners, uh, Kate is asking whether there's any teratogenic information for women who want to be vaccinated. I had to look that word up, Norman, but it means uh, do do the vaccines cause birth defects? No evidence of that. Um, So there have been some good studies now following through. There haven't been randomised randomised trials yet of people who are pregnant, but a lot of follow-up. There's been a lot of pregnant women immunised, particularly in the United States, and there's no evidence that babies are born with birth defects, which is fantastic news. One of the benefits of a massive, like literally global vaccine rollout with millions and millions and tens of hundreds, trillions, billions, I don't know, Norman, how many vaccines have been rolled out so far? What well it means over is three billion at the moment. Three billion vaccines globally, and it's being studied so closely. It's just such an enormous trove of, of knowledge that we have about these vaccines, yep. even though they're new. We know so much about them. And what, what you're finding now is rare side effects that are emerging, and they're emerging within the first six months of vaccines. And the whole history of vaccines is if you're going to get a serious side effect, you generally get it within six months of the vaccine. It's very rare if indeed it's ever occurred, that you get longer-term effects than that. And so with pregnancy, you're not seeing this sort of problem with with birth defects in babies. I'm finding it hugely reassuring. Good. 
And Ewan, one last question from Ewan. Uh, Ewan has been looking at rapid antigen COVID tests and just wanted to know whether Australia should be doing more of these like we see over in the UK. What are the pros and cons of rapid antigen tests compared to the traditional PCR tests that we do here? Gosh, this is a fraught area, Ewan. Um, the current PCR tests, that's the nasal swab that goes through into the back of your nose, is a river of gold for private pathology companies. They get about 100 bucks a test. So there's a huge conflict of interest out there in terms of the money that's flowing to private and indeed public pathology who are charging Medicare. Um, so that, that's one of the issues. And there's confusion between the nose swab, which probably is the gold standard, and the saliva PCR test, which is the genetic test, which is not a rapid antigen test. And that, that has some degree of false negatives as well, So it's not the, as well as the rapid antigen test. So the rapid antigen test is not as accurate in terms of picking up the disease. It can be a false negative. Now, I should say that the PCR test produ- produces false negatives too. If you've got low viral load at the beginning of the infection, the PCR test is negative. And you've probably heard... Chief Health Officer is talking about this. If you think you might have it, don't just accept the first test. Go and have a repeat test, particularly if symptoms emerge, um, because it's falsely negative early on because it's not detecting enough virus. So the rapid antigen test does that as well. And, um, and they say, well, you could miss it. How you get around that is by doing multiple rapid antigen tests. And there's been a huge controversy at the Howard Springs facility in Northern Territory where they stopped doing rapid antigen tests, where they thought this was actually quite a good thing to do with staff, doing that repeatedly and then doing occasional, so every two or three days doing the PCR test, because it's much easier to do the rapid antigen test. So it's, um, they're pretty good tests, but they're... But if, and they're pretty good tests when you compare them to the saliva test, but they're not as good as the PCR nasal swab. Um, but practically speaking, particularly if you're going to put people in home quarantine with uh, they're coming from overseas, you might put them on twice daily rapid antigen tests. So they cost ten bucks a pop, and um, and you you do it twice a day and and check up on that, and then you do maybe PCR every couple of days. That's going to be quite you know, that might be well uh, might be quite a good strategy for home quarantine for overseas. Returnees, so possibly a place for them in in the Australian context, even though our our levels of virus are relatively very low compared to somewhere like the UK. Yeah, that's right, and probably not in part as part of diagnostic screening when you've got an outbreak going. But yes, in terms of controlling it in a known environment, or you're a truck driver and you've got to do repeated tests, or you're in healthcare and you need repeated tests, maybe doing lots of rapid antigen tests interspaced with PCR. Interesting. Well, Norman, that's all the questions I've got for you in the mailbag this evening. But of course, listeners, you can send your questions in by emailing healthreport at abc.net.au. And we'll see you next week. Yes, we will. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.